As we pray together. Father, obviously the theme that we're looking at this morning is love. There's so much confusion about that in our day and age, in our culture. So we pray, Lord, you would open our eyes, help us to see what real love that has been manifested to us, the real love that you have shown to us. Help us to understand that more clearly. Help us to be wowed and amazed by that more profoundly. And we pray, Father, that you might help us to see the gospel implications of such a wondrous love. A love that's like an ocean that captures us, lifts us up, and carries us along. A love that surrounds us. A love that truly amazes us. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts of everyone here today that we might gain a fresh appreciation of the wonders of your love and what that means in our day-to-day life. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. During the time of the Nazi rule in Germany, a German theologian and a member of the underground church by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer spent two years being moved from one prison to another. And during those years, all the time he had spent enjoying fellowship with believers had now been cut off from him. He spent two years there in these prisons, cut off from this face-to-face fellowship he enjoyed with his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not surprising then that during those years in prison, he wrote a book. The title of the book is Life Together. It's a book about Christian fellowship, the blessings and the privileges of Christian fellowship. And listen to the first opening lines of the book. He writes this, it is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of enemies. At the end, all of his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. And for this cause, he came. And then he adds this line. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and the Lord's Supper. It's no wonder then when Bonhoeffer was thinking those thoughts that his mind went and reflected upon the statement that we read about of the early church in the book of Acts that we read in chapter 2 that they continually devoted themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. What does that look like, devoting yourself to fellowship? When the gospel takes hold of the hearts of God's people, What kind of responses, what kind of reactions begin to occur among those people? What would you expect to see in a group of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel? The Bible says there are at least two outward evidences of the work of God's grace in the gospel and changing people's lives. The first is a love for Christ. And the second is a love for fellow believers. 
And this morning I'm going to begin a sermon series on the one another commands of the New Testament, also known as the reciprocal commands. It's sort of a fancy word. It just means one another. In other words, I'm to do this to you and you do this back to me. It's the kind of give and take uh, expressions of love that are found throughout the books of the New Testament. These are just practical expressions of biblical love that characterize true biblical fellowship. We live in an age where there's so much focus on self-love and self-esteem has become the real new golden rule in our culture and many people have become accustomed to living self-absorbed lives. It all relates to me. How does it work for me? If, it, if it's okay with me, then I'll be, I might participate in it. If it doesn't, I'm not interested in it. People are so used to using other people rather than ministering to people in mutually edifying ways. And so God's children who are gathered in a local church have the privilege of putting the gospel on display. And we make clear to the world, the watching world, what does it mean to truly love? <clears throat> what does it mean to love each other in a Christ-honoring way? Do we do it perfectly? Do we do it as best as we can? No. But the church is the place that you begin to see those things, the glimpses of those become more evident and more clear. So this morning I want us to focus our thoughts from John chapter 13. So if you'll find your way in your Bible to John 13, which by the way is in page 1282 in your pew Bible, 1282, John 13. <clears throat> our focus is really to consider three Areas, three considerations regarding Jesus' mandate for this kind of love, the one anothering love, the reciprocal kind of love. Read along with me of John 13, follow along as I read verse 31 to 35. This is now spoken on the night of the Passover meal, the night in which Jesus would later on be betrayed. He's gathered in the upper room with his disciples. He says, when therefore Judas had gone out, which is the one that was referring to, He's getting ready to betray Jesus. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also. Verse 34 is the key phrase here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Well, first of all, I want us to think in the important understanding of coming to a text. First thing we want to ask ourselves is, what is the context of Jesus' call to reciprocal love. What's the context here? Well, the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle John frames this context, the setting of Jesus's farewell discourse found in John chapter 13 to 17. He frames it with some very interesting phrases at the beginning of this whole picture. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 13, just back up a page or two, and we read, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that an interesting way to start off this final encounter, this close sharing that Jesus had with his disciples? What we learn here is that Jesus' departure was imminent. He not only was going to die, but he was going to eventually depart and ascend back into heaven. And so his moments are very few with his disciples. He knew he was going to leave the world, and he was going to look forward to the enjoyment of fellowship with his father that he enjoyed from eternity. And so he seizes this moment to instruct his disciples about gospel love. And how does he do it? Well, first of all, he gives them a very powerful and memorable example of love the kind of selfless love in that he got down on his knees and washed the dirty feet of each one of his disciples amidst their protests and their, their statements. Oh, no, no, you'll never do that. He didn't wash their feet. And then even the even more profound way and more memorable and significant way, he cleansed their sin-filled hearts as he shed his blood and gave his life on the cross for them to rescue them from damnation and from the penalty of their sin. So Jesus in this text is going to call on his followers to engage in a kind of fellowship of true reciprocal love. Not merely just talking about love. Jesus is showing them, I'm going to demonstrate this love for you. Now if we zoom in a little bit more carefully into the text here as John depicts this setting on the idea of loving one another, I think it's fascinating to look at what's going on again specifically because as I noted there, and before I started reading, the first word of John 13, 31 says, When therefore he had gone out, that he was Judas. So as we zoom in, we see that Jesus' demonstration of selfless love is set against the backdrop of what I would argue is devil-inspired actions that Judas is carrying out to betray Jesus. Look at verse 2 that bears witness to that. It's the devil that's working here. It's Satan who's at work in these, uh, in these events. And so the son of perdition, Judas, leaves the room during the Passover meal in order to carry out the ultimate act of selfishness. He is this, he is, uh, his view of Jesus has soured. He is disillusioned with Jesus. He doesn't buy into all the stuff that he's listened to Jesus talk about for years now. He realizes the kingdom's not going to be the way he thought it was. And so he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not following this anymore. And he betrays Jesus to the Jewish authorities for what? For his own financial gain, which is so typical of worldly fellowship. If it's not working for me, I'll throw you under the bus. I don't care about you. It's all about me. That's the backdrop of what Jesus is saying about true biblical love. We have in Judas a pitiful example of worldly fellowship. And don't we see it on display pretty much every day? It's all about looking out for number one. Then if we zoom out a little bit more, having looked at the, what, what Judas is doing and his scheming, we understand in the larger context, Luke 22 fills this in for us. It's not listed right here in John's Gospel. But the 12, the disciples themselves, the 11, if you will, are talking about a subject matter that's dear to their hearts. They're arguing about who's the greatest and who will be the greatest, who will have the position of the greatest honor in the kingdom. They're about themselves. 
Who's going to be a, I want it. No, I want it. I'm going to be the, you can just hear the kind of dynamic going on among them. That's zooming out in the other context of what's going on here. And what I gained from that is, as I read that, I thought, don't we all have a lot of common with these people? I mean, they are just like we are, in a sense. I mean, our natural tendency, isn't it, to defend ourselves? Our natural tendency is to insist that we are right, and we'll argue, and we'll get all worked up until we get convinced that you know that we're right, and you see our point of view. We will devote ourselves to loving things more than we really love other people. We will sacrifice for our things, but you ask me to get involved when somebody's got problems, hey, sorry, I got too much going on in my own life. You see, Jesus died on the cross to create a new society. He is coming to rescue a humanity that went off the rails back in Genesis 3 in the garden and has continually been characterized by this kind of selfish love. Jesus was raised to life to empower a new way of living in community. So Jesus in this text is instructing his disciples. He mandates this kind of reciprocal love, knowing that redemptive history is littered with it, endless examples of discord and division and disunity. And so Jesus knows that the change must come from the inside. There will never be outward change in the dynamics of relationships among his followers unless there are changes going on in their hearts and their minds. And so that's why we understand Jesus' comments are best understood in the context in which he spoke them. That is, with the specific events going on with his followers, oh, what a need for changed hearts they had. Same is true with us. Amen? But we also understand that Jesus is writing about and very much aware that there's much to come as he offers these words of command. He's saying, and he knows, he's laying down his life for these condemned, helpless, hopeless sinners by bearing their punishment upon himself on that cross. He's about to inaugurate this new covenant, the blessings that come with his sealing them with his blood. And he therefore he's going to say, no longer are you going to have this, all these rules outside of you. I'm going to write the word of God on your heart. I'm going to give you help in keeping the word different than in the past. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting, in the upper room discourse, John's gospel 13, 14, 15, and chapter 16, Numerous times as he mentioned the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the one who's the spirit of truth. He emphasizes that there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit is going to create new hearts. And from those new hearts, we'll see fruit begin to show of changing from being self-focused people to be people who now really are going to begin to love each other in some similar way to how Christ has loved them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, when applied to sinful, selfish hearts by the Holy Spirit, is the only real hope of seeing these things come true, of seeing reciprocal love lived out in the church of Jesus Christ. And so that if you fast forward and look through the rest of the New Testament, once Jesus had been raised from the dead, he ascends back to heaven, and so the church has started, and you see these gatherings of believers now beginning to try to get used to this idea of living in fellowship with each other, with the Holy Spirit, with the gospel. It's not too surprising as you read the letters written by the leaders of these churches 
that they begin to specifically address and, 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 and point out areas where we need to work on this idea of this love issue going on. They're going to remind them of the gospel blessings again and again. They're going to remind them of what Christ has done them for them. They're going to point them back to the gospel and say the gospel is what you need to focus upon, what Christ has done for you. And as you embrace that and amazed, become amazed by that, it hopefully will soften your heart. And you begin to see your brother and your sister that annoys you. You'll see them differently. There's a link between the gospel as God has loved us and then us learning to love each other. And that's found, obviously, in the reading we heard earlier in 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the sin-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. And beloved, since God has so loved us, and he loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. So the vertical love that God has for us is to be worked out on the horizontal plane because of the gospel. So the apostles, they coached those early believers, they instructed those early believers, they kept reminding them of the practical applications of what it means to be involved in reciprocal love. And that's why in the New Testament you find a list of over at least 24 and even more than that, one another commands. And I've, list, I've listed them on a sheet of paper, some, most of them, and this can be found if you'd like this resource uh, below the mailboxes back there. Uh, there are numerous copies if you'd like to grab one today. We'll be going through this list uh, down through the upcoming weeks. Pray for one another, admonish one another, be, uh, accept one another. All those kind of commands are found throughout the New Testament. Now here's the important thing. The only way we will ever see these one another start taking place among us is if we are abiding and communing in Christ. The only way you're going to see the fruit of evidence of love coming out of somebody's heart is if that person is closely relating to Christ on a regular basis. Years ago, I used to grow roses. I don't grow them anymore. Long story, won't get into all that. But at one time, there were some beautiful roses growing in a bed I had over here in the field. And being one who was raising uh, active kids at one time, there were bouncing balls flying all over the place in our field out there. And every so often, a ball would go flying through the rose garden and nail one of my rose plants so that the branch would just completely break off and there it was lying on the ground. Sad, not the end of the world. I don't think I had any kind of exclamations come out of me that were not repeatable. But anyway, it was disappointing. But the point here I'm trying to make is that branch that got knocked off if it contained a bud at the time, which had not opened yet, there is no hope of ever seeing that bud open its beautiful, fragrant, incredibly colorful um, rosebud. will never open up and you'll never smell it. Why? Because it got broken off from the root system and is now on its own. And the same is true in the Christian life. If we attempt to live in our own strength, and we're not in touch with Christ, we're not communing with Christ, we're not asking Christ for help, we're not being amazed by Christ's love for us, we're not going to see these kinds of one another's. They're not going to happen. They'll become burdensome rules. Do this, do this, stop doing this, stop doing that. But if we abide in Christ, we will begin to sense our hearts become affected by that love, and it will begin to show forth, hopefully, a sweet scent 
of Christ-likeness opening up in a beautiful bud of daily life and living together. Point number two I want us to think about in terms of what's the context, that was the context. Point number two is, what did Jesus really mean when he used the term love? What did he really mean? Well, before I really get into the definition for you in your notes, I want to just make a couple of observations. The first is the call to love one another. As we're learning in our Sunday school class, we noticed carefully how the verbs work. It's a command. Love one another. Implied, you, you should be loving one another. You are to love one another. It involves something more than feelings because it involves a command. I can't command you to feel sad. You can't say to somebody, all right, right now, start feeling sad. I can't do that. It's not going to be very effective. But if I say to my child years ago, pick up the mess you just made on the floor there, pick up all those toys, put them away, then that is something that child can do. So biblical love involves then an act of the will. In our culture, people use the term love to mean who knows what anymore. Sometimes they use it in a terms of I'm turned on by you, so let's get sexually intimate, although they don't even use the term love for that anymore. That kind of sharing of one's most intimate aspect of one's life even is done apart from love, but love oftentimes is something that overtakes us, something that's just caught up like a wave that just carries us along, and it's just like an emotional sentimentalism that we, we sometimes think that's what love is all about. You fall into love as if you had no control over it. I would like to suggest to you that true biblical love arises out of the will, not out of our emotions. I'm not saying we couldn't have emotions, but I'm saying you can love someone and still not have emotional, wonderful, giddy little feelings making the, neck, the hair on your back of your neck uh, stand up. You don't have to have those feelings. You can still love somebody apart from those things. You may have it, but you may not. You still can love them. Again, I would say, this is because I'm arguing this, because Jesus is commanding his disciples to love. As Paul commands husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's a command. It's not something you do that's when you're in the mood or when it feels good. You catch my drift? Okay, I think I made that point. Well, let's talk about what agape love. It is anchored to our mind or will. And here's a definition which I found helpful by Sue Harville in a publication, it says this, agape love is an inward attitude or affection expressed in benevolent behavior or action which seeks the ultimate welfare of another. I'm going to repeat that. Agape love is the inward attitude or affection expressed in benevolent behavior which seeks the ultimate welfare of another. Tim Keller adds this definition, love is counting someone else's needs and interests as more important than your own needs or interests or comfort. And I would add to that an important concept, and that is, and then taking appropriate action to meeting that need. I don't think he went far enough in his definition. See, the mark of true biblical love is giving yourself for the benefit of another person. The ultimate demonstration of selfless love was what? Jesus laying down his life for his people. 
John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Here's Jesus bearing on the cross the full brunt of the just and holy wrath that was really ours, that belonged to us, and yet he's bearing it on our behalf. We deserve to be punished. He took that punishment on himself, and this selfless sacrifice brought our ultimate welfare and blessing to us. You see, self-sacrificial love comes out of a heart. It's the fruit of a heart that loves God. And all behavior flows from the heart. And Jesus witnessed example after example of, sorry, the disciples witnessed from Jesus numerous examples of his selfless love, his selfless actions. He didn't just walk around saying, oh, I love you. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that, but Jesus in his ministry, he demonstrated it. You saw in his heart, full of love for his father, and, and his love for his father resulted in compassionate, carrying out the father's will, the father's plan, and he did not demand that his disciples come and wash his feet. He said, okay, you lazy bunch of guys, get, would you get the bowl and get the towel and get over here and wash my feet? He doesn't say that to them. He doesn't demand them to do what they really should have been doing. Someone should have done it. There was a need there in the room. They all knew it. You don't sit down and start eating until you've washed your feet. That's the culture. But he gave them example, laying down his life, pointing to the greater example of his imminent death and reminding them that his blood is going to be poured out for them, saving them from their sins. So love is much more than feelings and sentiment. Agape love involves action. And love is willing to dedicate itself and commitment itself to others. Now, I'm trying to find a quote here. I've got a quote from um, C.S. Lewis, which I thought was quite helpful in his book, The Four Loves. And by the way, you might find that to be helpful too. And he says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. Your heart will become impenetrable, irredeemable. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. I think some of us at one point may have said to myself, and I think of people who are on the fringe of the church. People say, oh, I'm not going to join a church. Oh, I'll never be a member of a church. They like to be on the fringe. What is that saying? I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to have anybody expect me to get involved, or I'm not going to expect them to get involved. I'm just going to keep my distance, keep my safety. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. And the kind of agape love that Christ is calling for here is a love that seeks the ultimate welfare of another. It involves the commitment and getting out of myself and into other people's needs in a way that's clearly manifested as I'm, not, I'm living not just for myself, I'm living for others, I'm living for Christ. You say, well, show how that's connected. Look at 1 John 3, again, when the Apostle John uh, who is described in scriptures, the one who loved Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't use his name, but he says, I'm the one who loved Jesus. He's reflecting on Jesus' agape love shown to him 
And he realizes, you know, love is just not theoretical. It's not just, oh, I got to think nice thoughts. I might think a pleasant thing about that person, or I might say, hi, how are you? Okay, well, that's nice. That's the beginning, but that's not a lot. <clears throat> but it's tangible. It's practical. He says this in verse 14 of 1 John 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. What's the evidence of being a Christian? There's evidence that you're loving other brethren. What are brethren? Fellow believers in the local church. You can't love every single believer in the whole world. So he's talking about people that you can identify yourself with in the local church. He who does not love abides in death. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So he's saying, practically speaking, you can't just say, I'm going to remain uninvolved when there's a need I know about and I have the means to meet that need. I'm not just going to sit here and say, I love you and do nothing. And so what I'm trying to draw here is, I'm making my point here, laying down our lives involves a choice. A choice that we make. Sharing our worldly goods with somebody in need is a choice that you make out of love. Giving of our time to listen to someone who's discouraged. Giving our time to talking with someone on the phone and listening to their hurts and their sadness or their difficulty that they're facing is a choice that you make. Forgiving a brother or sister who sins against us and then repents is a choice that you make. If the love of God is in our hearts, it will prompt us to open our hearts to other people. And if the eyes of our hearts are focused on the love that God has demonstrated toward us in the gospel, it will lead us to once again celebrating the gospel, reflecting on the wonders of what we've received and the riches of God, his gift of giving selfless love to us. And this love, as we begin to understand the wealth of love that God has shown us in Christ, how rich I am, I have lots of things now I can share with other people from that love that he's shown to me. There's a reservoir of his love that now I've received, and from that I can learn to serve other people. And it leads eventually to commit ourselves to being a part of a local church, of entering into a covenant that says, I'm going to commit myself to living out this love within the context of this community, and we're going to commit ourselves, bind ourselves together in that covenant, not because we have to, but because I'm determined to let it be known I am a follower of Christ. And so watch me as we live it out together in the context of this community. It's not theoretical love. It's measurable love. It's real love. It's visible love among imperfect people in the local body of Christ. That brings me to my third point as it's a little bit warm in here today. And so bear with me. How are we to love one another? How are we to do it? Two, two points I want to make here, and then I'm done, so hang in with me. Two ways to answer the question. First, we want to ask the question, first we can answer by saying, what did Jesus have in mind when he made the concept and mentioned the concept of reciprocal love, one anothering love, is a new command. It's a new precept. What does he mean by that? Because isn't it true that in the Old Testament you can find that there's some admonition to love other people? Answer, yes. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, 
but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, there it says, love your neighbor. So what's new about this? Well, the newness of this kind of reciprocal love is seen in the qualification Jesus adds. He says, just as I have loved you. Wow, that's a big qualification. Never had we seen selfless, continuous, self-sacrificing love been demonstrated to the degree we see it in the life of Christ. He modeled love that crossed over boundaries. It's amazing. Jesus expanded the breadth of compassion. He encompassed people who were the hated people of that society. He engaged in the, in the tax collectors. He sat down with those who were the uh, Samaritans. He talked and took on conversations with them. Jesus is crossing boundaries of people that normally would never have anything to do with each other. The body of Christ includes Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and older. And Jesus is showing us that love is able to cross over all sorts of bridges and get into the people's lives that are different from you as he ministers to all sorts of people and met all sorts of needs. He provides for our greatest need when he humbled himself on the cross. Our enemies, we were his enemies at the time he did all that. And as he took on the most shameful, degrading form of death possible, from that comes his church, the people of God, the covenantal community, the church, and the members of his body. So it's as he has laid down his life, that's the standard to which we're to sort of think about and follow. Secondly, Jesus is the embodiment of love. He is the embodiment of love. One author took the description of love that's found in 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, if you ever want to know how you're tracking in your expression of love, look at a very good description of what some elements of love should include. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 13. But listen to what, rather than say love is patient, love is kind, what happens if we put Jesus in place of the word love? Because he is the ultimate embodiment of love. And so we read this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking or easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. It's fair to do that, isn't it? That's a, that's a, good, that's a good bringing it down to what really love is. But what would happen if we substitute in this passage that describes love? What happens if we make a substitution and we put our names in place of love? Can you honestly say, I am patient? I am kind? I do not envy or boast? I'm not proud or rude or self-seeking. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but I rejoice in truth. I always protect, trust, and persevere. How would the people around you who know you the best, how would they evaluate your love based on those kind of practical assessments? And the fact is, all of us surely can admit we fall far short of that. We're not here to condemn each other about that. 
We're here to say we desperately need a Savior who still loves us when we fail, when we are self-absorbed, when we are people who uh, celebrate what's wrong and we keep long lists and we're easily angry, we're rather proud and arrogant. And we have all these struggles of our hearts, but we're still dearly loved by a Savior who gave himself for us. And so what I want us to encourage to think about on this day when it comes to how to love one another as Jesus loved, we need the gospel. We need the gospel. We fall short. We are selfless in our love for, in our, rather than loving other people, we love ourselves so much more. And therefore, we need, obviously, Christ in us, giving us a new heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I wanted to just again affirm how thankful I am that you love a selfish person like me and the selfish people of this room. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourselves for self-focused people like us. And Lord, I pray today that you would teach us to love the people in our lives as you love. I would ask, Lord, that you would graciously work in our hearts that our natural inclination would not be to put ourselves first. But, Lord, change us, transform us through the gospel, that our first concern would be to put other people first. Lord, I pray that our attitudes, our actions would make clear to those around us that your love is filling our hearts. Lord, we need your, we need your grace because we... It would be our desire to have, in some small way, reflect to people around us that your character, Lord, they would begin to see that we are acting differently than we have been in the past. So we ask that you would cleanse us and renew us, empower us, Lord, that we might imitate you as our Heavenly Father. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit anew, that we may live a new life, not by manufacturing good works, for all the wrong reasons, to try to win the approval of other people or somehow out of duty or obligation or somehow become better than other people. But Lord, give us a motive that we might have love for others that would respond as a way of thanking you and praising you for your holy, eternal, covenantal love you've poured out on us. Give us new motives, Lord. Empower us by your grace. Fill our hearts with your love, your compassion for those around us. And Lord, if there's someone here today who begins to see themselves as indeed a person who does not love you or love others as they should have, I pray, the Lord, that they would know there's forgiveness for them through the Savior who died for them. May they come in faith, repenting of their sin and trusting in him alone for a heart of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.